You're listening to the sermon audio from the Shore Church located in North Vancouver. For more information about the Shore, upcoming events, or to donate, you can head to www.theshorechurch.ca. Church. It's so good to be here with you this morning. Uh, welcome. If you are new here, welcome, welcome, welcome. So good to have you. We're going to read, uh, continue to go through the book of 1 John, chapter 2. We are in verses 12 through 14 this morning. So please read along with me. It's on the screen. Again, 12 through 14. It says this. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children, because you know the father. And I write to you fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. This is the word of God. All right, well, let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you so much for your amazing grace. I thank you for your word, and I I pray that this word will affect change in our hearts and our lives. I thank you that you speak to the church in the whole, that you speak to us as children, as ones new to the faith, as young men that are strong and vigorous. I I thank you that you speak to the fathers, the mature, the the ones that that know you deeply. And I, I just pray that as we glean through this text this morning that that it will be an encouragement to us all and a challenge to us all as we walk in newness of who you have called us. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, on my 10-year anniversary with my wife Jody, uh, we took our love letters along that we wrote to one another. Like, so we dated two years far apart from one another. We, we lived actually two provinces away, many of those two, first two years of our relationship. And and it was actually really fruitful because there was no cell phones, no internet. You actually either had to dial up and call the individual or you actually had to, like John is doing, write a letter and send it in the mail and then wait for about six days until you received a response from that letter. And we did that throughout our dating years. And then 10 years in, when we went to Costa Rica together, we brought all those letters with each other and uh, we read them to each other, and it was a lot of fun. We had a lot of laughs. We, we were incredibly goofy, and uh, man, the, the love we got to see grow and grow and grow through those years, through that, ten, that first 10 years of relationship, and it was a lot of fun. And we're going on to 29 years this summer, and, and I actually cannot imagine la, la, life without Jody. Uh, to be with her, to, to walk with her, to, to do life together with her is, is something that I, I couldn't imagine doing without at this point. See, to share your love with and for someone is powerful. And this could be with a roommate, a child, a close friend, the church, or like I've said, with a spouse. And these three verses are, are packed with love and encouragement for us all. This is John's love letter to his fellow believers, to the church. It's not only to the church, but it, as we see in the text, it's to the children, to the young men, to the fathers. For their assurance of their salvation, for their assurance and the encouragement for the eternal. This is why he's writing this 
amazing love letter. And what better message than one that Jesus proclaims to us himself? See, let's quickly look at those that John is talking to. It says here in verse 12, little children. This comes from the original word technion, which means the Christians, both male and female, of the church. This is John speaking about the church when he says little children. Also in verse 12, we see fathers being mentioned. See, fathers, fathers refers to the men of the church that are mature in their faith, those that aren't swayed by suffering, trials, persecution, those that can handle secondary conversations and speak of them with wisdom, knowledge, but most importantly, with love. These are the elders, the deacons of the church, those faithful that are pursuing others to disciple. And if one desires disciple, these are the very men that young men should ought to, anyways, look for to mentor them and be mentored by them and walk with them. Then there's the young men, the Neanoskos. These are men that have past childhood, those between the ages of 20 to 40, zealous, faithful, ready for war, emotional, physical, and spiritual war, strong, bold, and courageous, ready to fulfill the task at hand. And lastly, the children, the pation. The word child here is being used differently here. As we saw at the beginning of verse 12, little children, technion, refers to the whole church, both men and women. And this word pation used by John refers to, to men and women of the church, but those that are infants in their faith, the immature, in, in, at all ages, but yet new to the Christian faith. They are new believers, those that, just, that are just beginning to understand the beauty and the grace of Jesus. And as a reminder, 1 John is a, is a letter to the church. This is the letter that ought to encourage us in our faith journey to see the holiness of Jesus and seek him with all we have. See, John is writing to remind the family of God of Jesus' goodness. This is why he's writing this amazing letter. So let's jump in. Well, John says, I'm writing these things to you 14 times in this little letter, six times in our text that we're going to cover this morning. And as I've said, he writes to the church, the fathers, the young men, and the new believers. And I laid it out this way. You can see it on the screen this morning. To remind the church, to renew the fathers, to rally the young men, and to reassure the children. So let's hit number one there, to remind. And again, it says, writing to you little children, and this again to the church, to all believers, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. See, John is assuming that the church understands their depravity that we all started in, that we started in sin, that we needed forgiveness. John is also assuming the how here. See, we have the mention of the why, is that it's for Jesus' namesake. That's the why of the text. But we don't have the how. How are our sins forgiven? See, this is not the starting point for those outside the church. Those outside the church believe in their goodness. See, when you are evangelizing your friend or family member, we have to help them see that they are sinful before a holy God. That's the starting point. The starting point is a holy God, and we are sinful in his, comparatively to his holiness. He is perfect. We are not. But for those in the church, we get to the next level of understanding and remind the church that their sins are forgiven. And let me put it to you this way. We might know that a car starts when you take a key and put it in the ignition and turn that key. 
but you have no idea how that little key turn turns on this massive engine under the hood and how you can travel in this car across the country. It's a mystery. But the how is actually incredibly important to understand. Like, it doesn't mean that you, I'm saying you have to all be mechanics, but you do, in order to be a Christian, know how your sins are forgiven. It's actually really important. See, without knowing how our sins are forgiven, we have no hope. We have no life past this one. We must understand how our confessed sin and our belief in Jesus becomes our only hope. See, this is vitally important to John as he writes. In fact, this is why he is writing. This little sentence then becomes one of the greatest reminders that we as a church could receive. Your sins are forgiven. See, it's not the first time an apostle of Jesus shared this. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthian church, in chapter 15, verses 1 through 5, says it this way, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, the good news. That's all the gospel means, just good news. The good news I preached to you, which you received, in which you now stand, and by which you are being saved. Interesting. Okay, Paul, how are you being saved? Well, it says it right there in the next couple verses. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, Unless, of course, you believed in vain. Unless you said, yeah, I believe that, and then just lived your life contrary. You faked it. And then in verse 3, it says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ Jesus died for our sins. And here's the first importance. Christ Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared. Christ's life, death, and resurrection. This is how one is saved when you confess and believe in this. See, this is what we know as the church. We know this. This is what John is reminding us of. He is reminding us of the how. Your sins are forgiven for Jesus' namesake. See, John is assuming that we know the how, and we should, right? We are the church. We are the those, whether it be children, all the way to fathers, we know the truth. And all glory goes to Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection, and his appearing to others. This is of first importance. So church, this is the gospel rem reminder in this one little phrase, and it brings power to the phrases that follow. So let's look for a moment at the gospel. The gospel is that there is a holy God that we are sinful before a holy God, and there is nothing that we can do to gain salvation with God inside of ourselves. We need something outside of us, and that something outside of us is Jesus. And we are called to confess him with our life, death, and his life, death, and resurrection. We are called to confess that we believe and trust in him. This is the only way. Jesus is the only way. He actually said, I am the only way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. This is the gospel. And unfortunately, we believe at times that the gospel requires that we work. This is a functioning aspect of works. But Galatians 2.21 talks about this and debunks this. And it says this in a whole bunch of verses after I'm going to share with you. But it says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. 
See, Paul is saying here that our works do nothing for salvation. They do nothing. And if they did something for salvation, if you could actually work out your salvation by your works, by your own power, then Christ didn't even need to die. This is what Paul is saying. It's not about your works. It's actually about what Christ did. His work is what saves us. In Romans 3.28, it says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Again, our righteousness does not come from our works. Romans 4.3, For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That belief is incredibly important. Romans 4, 5, and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And then Romans 5, verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in Acts 16, 31, it says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Are we getting it? These are just a handful of verses out of all of the scripture that say the same thing. It's not by your works. It is by grace alone. And we see this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God and the result of works, so that no one may boast. Again, in Romans 10, 9 and 10, it says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. It is the, out of the heart the mouth will speak. When your heart is transformed, you will, you will not be able to hold back your confession to Jesus Christ. And when your heart is transformed, your actions, your responses will change. And that's exactly what John is talking about in this book, in his writing. Your sins are forgiven for Jesus' namesake. We must recognize the one who saves us. This is what John is getting at. We must confess Jesus and proclaim his name loud and clear. Let me give you a couple verses on that. It says Luke 24, 47. It says repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name, in Jesus' name, to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. In Acts 10, 43, it says to him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. In Acts 13, 38, it says, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you for Jesus' name's sake. What a reminder. What a reminder. How are our sins forgiven? Well, by believing and confessing in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's all for Jesus. It's all for his namesake and his glory. Church, your sins are forgiven. Now we move to the mature, the fathers of the faith, to renew. This is what John is doing. He's renewing the fathers. In verse 13 and 14, it says the same thing to the fathers. It says, because you know him who is from the beginning. You see, in counseling, when I counsel people, I walk with them. And one of the first meetings I have with individuals as I sit with them and talk with them is that if you tell me just a little bit of your story, 
and this is your whole story, and I only have this much, I actually might give you bad counsel because I need to know more of who you are. Right? The more you share with each other, the more things are opened up, the more we realize, the more we can renew one another. And the more I have, like, like shame and abuse will begin to formulate my understanding of who you are as an individual. So you may discover those past abuses, the shame, the anger that has revealed itself as a protector of their kingdom. And the more you get to know people, sometimes you'll start finding out that actually some people begin to actually disengage and fracture relationship when they know they're moving on. And sometimes people will hide the closer you get to what matters. So the closer you dive in, the closer, the more questions you're asking, the closer you get to know people, the more people actually hide because then the very thing that is their comfort begins to be revealed. See, John is speaking to the mature here. Those that are done playing these types of games. Those that are willing to reveal themselves because they have discovered over the years that hiding gives them no advantage. John is speaking to those that have finally with open hands, given all their life, share openly to one another, confess sin to one another. In the community group, these are the ones you actually love because they're open page, they're open books with, with their life. They're, they're willing to share open in struggles and battles because it gives Jesus the glory. These are the mature. And they ask, why would I hold back? Why would I try to hide? Jesus lives everywhere. He is in me. I live beneath the eyes of the Father at all times. Why would I hold back? It's pointless. I know him who is from the beginning. That's why John is writing, to renew the Father's knowledge of who he is, who the Father is, who the Son is, who the Holy Spirit is. There is an intimacy with Jesus the more you spend time with him. This is the point. See, to the church, John assumed the how. To the mature, John assumes the why. See, I know him who is from the beginning. Why is that, is that important? Well, he doesn't explain it. He just says this. I know him, you know him from the beginning. See, John's renewal to the mature is exactly what they need to hear. This is what they need to hear. Why do we continue on in this life of pain and suffering and trial? Because you know Jesus. Remember? What a great reminder. See, you know him intimately, so continue on. John is renewing them. He's reminding them, do you remember Jesus? You know him. And that's the, all the reminder they need. So look, take that reminder and let's go. Let's live it out. To the young men, John is, John is rallying. These are those with vigor. In verse 13 and 14, John says, because you have overcome the evil one, and then in 14, and because you are strong and the word of God abides in you, and then again, you have overcome the evil one. He says this twice to the young men. See, John is encouraging your physicality and your mental and emotional toughness because Jesus has paid your way. He's paid your way. 
See, Jesus has paid your way to, and now go. Same thing to the mature. Okay, you remember this, now go. You're strong, you're crazy, I get this. Abide in the word, let's go. See, the problem is, in this present world we now live in, the world is proclaiming you as far different than what God proclaims you as. See, from childhood you have been given excuses. Your mental and physical toughness is being taken from you and replaced with an identity crisis. Young boys and girls are told they don't have the capacity to sit and listen. They aren't smart enough, and this continues on into your 20s. Or they are given so much control, control in areas they are not yet equipped to handle, to only fall short in. The lines of social structure in society is completely blurred for the children. They can choose to surgically remove their perfectly functioning genitalia, but cannot be given insignificant responsibility. Justice for the young is given from governing officials like teachers and principals and bosses at work rather than the parents at home. The parents, you parents, you mature in the faith and mature in Christ. You are to help direct and to point to Jesus. See, this rally is so important for you young men here today. Your rally point must be built upon your understanding of Jesus' sacrifice for you and that your sins are paid in full for his namesake, and most importantly, that you would abide in the word of God. And that the word of God abides in you. The world says you can do things on your strength, but we are all fully aware, aren't we, by this time, after 20 years of living on this earth, we're fully aware that we're fairly insignificant. We're aware of this. Without Jesus, we don't have any hope. So what do we do? See, in our 20s to 40s, we begin to realize the world is far bigger than we knew it to be when we were younger. The decisions we make actually affect much more than we originally thought. And the Bible says you can overcome the evil one. You are strong. This is what the Bible encourages you with. This is what the Bible is rallying you to, to ignore what the world tells you about yourself and to believe what the Bible is telling you about yourself and that you are strong, that you're filled with the spirit of self-control and love and, and peace and, and power, not because of your strength, but because of the word is in you. See, your strength is here. It's here in the word of God. Your power is here. In the Word of God. Psalm 119.9 says it this way. It says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Proverbs is filled with wisdom. It says in Proverbs 9 verse 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is actually insight. See, young men, this is where you will find your victory, in the sword, in the words of God. May it not just be an external weapon, but one that envelops you, that transforms your very identity. See, this past week, I got to meet with my mentor. My mentor is 87 years old, and man, I love him to death. I love him. He's an amazing man to hang out with. What we do is we sit at McDonald's and drink coffee, and we talk nothing but about Jesus. We talk about the Bible over and over again because it is the words of God. Like, what else can we really talk about? And this week, like most weeks, my mentor is sitting there with a tear running down his cheek 
holding on to the word of God and going, how can I live without this? Like, how, how can I actually go anywhere without this? This is my life source. What was I thinking for years when I wasn't walking with this? And when an 87-year-old man says this, we ought to listen. This is the word of life. It's the bread of life. It's our sustenance. Is that you? Do you love God and his word that much? This is a challenge for me. I, I want to study it. I want to know it. I want to love it. And I want to get to know it so intimately that I can't do anything without it. This is the rally to the young men. You're strong. You're courageous. And the word of God will abide in you. Look at the message to the new believer. It is to reassure. In verse 13, it says, Because you know the Father... This sounds familiar. This is actually the same language that the fathers received. Because you know the Father. So what's the difference? Well, the difference is the level of intimacy. See, when you first come to Jesus, you will find that you understand that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. This is what you confess as a new believer, that Jesus lived a perfect life, that he died for my sin, that he rose again, three days later, and then he appeared to many people for 40 days, then he ascended into heaven. Young children can understand that. And young children can be transformed by that message that Jesus is their Lord and Savior, that they confess that with their mouth and believe it in their heart and that they will be saved. This is a child's message all the way to a father, a mature's message. But the intimacy is what is being called to. The child is new to this understanding. The father has been dealing with this for years. Just like 29 years of marriage brings a lot more intimacy than the first year. See, it's a level of intimacy that's different. See, as you grow in wisdom and knowledge of the word, your zeal will grow, your desires will continue to change, and your love for the church will become a passion that you cannot ignore, that you'll begin to sit at McDonald's wrapping your arms around the scripture and weeping because you can't live without it. See, John is saying, be reassured you are saved because of your knowing Jesus. Re he's reassuring the children, you know the Father. It is now out of that knowing we now live for him. And this is the message that John is sharing. And it's so interesting. It's so cool because he hyperlinks this little poetry into what we've already discovered in the first two chapters. Let me show you. It says, we are to the church. We are to remember our sins are forgiven. Therefore, like in chapter 1, verse 7, it says, walk in his light and that you might be cleansed by his blood and have fellowship with him. To the fathers, we know Jesus. Therefore, like in chapter 2, verse 1, we have an advocate and a propitiation and the propitiation of Jesus for our sins. 
To the young men, we are called to remain strong, fight and battle with the strength of the Lord. Like chapter 2, verse 6 says, to walk as Jesus walked, knowing he and the word resides in you. And to the children, you know the Father. Like in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. It is Jesus, the one we have seen, touched, and now proclaimed to you. This is where you will find fellowship and joy, all for his namesake. See, this, this word is tied together. It's pointing to the one and only Jesus. And I said this is a love letter to the church. Paul says in Romans chapter 5 a little bit of an explanation of how Jesus loves us. Let me read it for us. It says this, For you will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, like we got to take notice of this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, if that's not good enough, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We were separate from the Father, and Jesus broke into that gap and connected us, reconciled us back by paying our debt, by paying the penalty of sin and death that we might be reconciled back to the Father. This is the good news. This is the reminders, the rallying points, the reassurance of this message. See, little children... Your sins are forgiven for Jesus' namesake. You know Jesus who is from the beginning. You are strong. You have overcome the evil one. And the word abides in you. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you so much for your word. Please help it continue to transform us from one degree of holiness to the next. May we live and abide in it more than anything else in this world. The things in this world are going to fade, but you remain forever. So help us trust in that. Help us confess that. Help us confess you, Jesus, as our Lord and Savior, and now live it out with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And I pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.